podcast about leadership, management, and a growing list of reasons to hate time zones. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pi Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. For a good time, stuff your problems and anxiety down really, really deep, and then schedule lots of committee meetings until they all come out in a glorious wave of entertainment. Uh, today on the show, we're talking with Tina Huang, co-founder and CTO at Transposit. Thank you for coming on the show, Tina. Welcome, Thank Tina. You so much. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so we're just going to dive right in. Uh, we want to hear about your path to leadership, to management. Um, how did you get from where you started to where you are today? So I think that my path to leadership is very different than a lot of your other guests on your podcast. Mm. And primarily, I say that because... I started my own company in order to get a role in leadership. <laughs> yeah, so you're going to there job go. and do it yourself. Uh, so tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll break this up into two different pieces. The first is, I think it's very interesting. I listened to your podcast and a lot of the other experiences come from men in the tech sector. And I feel like they have an experience that is often they've been picked by someone with promise to be a leader and given that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And in my first, what is it, 15 so years of being an engineer, I was never asked to be a manager. Yeah, that's, a, so, that's definitely a pattern. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because as, as a hiring manager now, I interview a number of women who also seem to have that reflected in their experience, mm -hmm. where it's really important that they, if they were to join my company, that they are given a management title off the bat because they've had that frustrating experience where once they start, they just keep getting passed over for leadership positions. And then if they try to apply for a position of leadership, they're told, well, you've never had that position, so you mm -hmm. don't qualify for it. Yeah, yeah. There's yep. like a common, uh, a commonly stated. I don't know, uh, you know, if there's a, a data behind this that that we can, you know, look up. But I've heard many times that men are promoted based on their potential, and women are promoted based on their experience. And that sounds like exactly what yeah, you're saying. Absolutely. And I think that the problem even gets worse once you factor in intersectionality. So yeah, yeah. I will say that the number of Asian women leaders in tech are that I can look at as role models are pretty few yeah. and far between. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm completely with you on this. I, I am super lucky that the CEO of my company is an Asian woman. So I'm like, you know, I am I am the, the lucky few. But yeah, you're totally right. It's totally. So you had to make your own leadership job to get that jump start into leadership. Yeah, yeah, tell us tell us about some of those early roles and and what led to even your interest in being in leadership and management. Well, I'd say that founding a company was a combination of my desire to build a company and a a startup and a product as well as my desire to build a culture and lead a team of engineers. So I think that, you know, to say that I started the company as my path to leadership is a little bit disingenuous. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's a little bit of both. But what is fantastic about this particular path to leadership is 
you have in some ways a very gradual learning curve. So the company started out with just me and my co-founder, and I was super fortunate that my co-founder was previously the CTO at his company.、Mm-hmm. So a lot of startup founders, especially if you're straight out of school, you have no role models and no network to go to. And there I was with a co-founder who who could actually coach me and even get me looped into various CTO networks that I could then reach to to get even further guidance and advice. So it's just it was a lot more gradual in the sense that I started out by we hired our first engineer, and so I was technically a leader and manager for this one other engineer, but it felt like a small team where we were all still building the product together.、Mm-hmm. And then we would just slowly grow engineers, and and so I, I I slowly stepped myself into that role and learned what it was like to run bigger and bigger meetings, add more and more structure, and we've recently hit that that. Next milestone where we've promoted up managers underneath me. Ah, so this is、oh, your、yeah. current role at at Transposit. I suppose this was not your very first、uh, start out.、Uh, of this is this is a、uh, the, the gig that you have currently. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, okay. All right. Cool. So yeah. So back up and where where did you start? I mean, I'm seeing on your your resume Apple and Google and Twitter and you know talk about these these big companies and then maybe even the leap to starting your own thing in com- comparison. So for me, my my dream was always to start my own company, but I, I think I, I I didn't have the guts to just start from the get go. So I actually went to smaller and smaller companies, very meticulously gathering the skills I thought I would need, until I got、ah. to the point of starting a company. So I jokingly say that every one of my companies was an order of magnitude fewer employees. <laughs> When I started, so I mean, when I was at Apple, it was probably in the tens of thousands of employees at the company, which、mm-hmm. is crazy because now I think they're they're significantly larger than that.、Mm-hmm. But then when I went to Google, it was in the thousands. When I went to Twitter, it was sub hundred. And to a startup,、uh, Sigma Computing, that was, I was a founding engineer there, down to starting my own company. So it was、yeah. very very、wow. structured and meticulous. <laughs> And like I that think... powers of ten video, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Did you just find too much security in these companies, and you were just like, no, it's it's too stable. I I need to go to smaller, and then just keep going. Enhance what, what caused this? <laughs> yeah. So for me, a huge part of it is I've always been an interdisciplinary person. So my first love was hacking on computers when I was in high school, but even when I went to college. I, for a brief moment of time, declared myself as a business major, not as a computer science major, until、oh, wow. I realized, no, that's stupid. Let's go and be a CS major. <laughs> business. But, <laughs> Who needs that? <laughs> exactly. But then after after my stint at Apple, I actually took a nine month master's in humanities at University of Chicago. Where、cool. it started out with humanities, but then I ended up doing more work around. Cultural anthropology, looking at blogging and some of the early social media and how it was used for storytelling and communication. And so from there, I actually I got the job. I got a job at Google working on Blogger as an engineer. But、mm. back then, Google was still very supportive. Maybe they still are now. I'm not sure of the notion of the 
time. And so I spent my 20% time actually working in user research. So I ran lab studies, some qualitative research, and I actually was able to get that formalized training in user user experience. Oh, that's Hmm. cool. Yeah, I don't know that 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 there's that amount of, you know, resources available at this point at Google. So yeah, I'm glad you got to have that experience. Yeah. And it's interesting at the time I thought about actually switching full time to user research because that was an area that was really interesting to me. But I realized it was too limiting from a a, a political perspective being under research since you had very little authority in building and driving product. And so yeah. I chose to stay in engineering. But even then, I understood that the only way you could both think about product and technology and user experience all together is by being at a startup. Yeah, by being a leader there as well. Yeah, having having that uh, cross cross-departmental, cross-functional desire, definitely you can only really get that that itch scratch at a startup. You're too compartmentalized when something gets over a thousand people, in my opinion. So what was, I mean, was your role at these big companies, it was all software engineer? I mean, was there anything that that distinguished them substantially as you went along? Like what what did you learn at these different companies despite having a, a, you know, a similar role or was it just... uh, I don't know. I mean, what 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 are the things that you took away from from Apple, from Each Google, stage. from Twitter? I think that there's a ton. There's just the pure technology side, which is probably less relevant for this podcast. But it's funny. I recently had my engine my new engineering managers read this book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Mm-hmm, yeah, and yeah, she she talks about the experiences of working at Google and then Apple and then coaching Dick Costello at, t- at Twitter. And so it was all of my different experiences as well <laughs> in terms of differences in leadership styles. And so it was interesting to see her reflections on that and how it mapped to my own personal experience. So yeah. I think that there's for sure very different leadership styles between Apple and Google. And I'd actually say Twitter fits somewhere in between the two, mm-hmm. but also a different sense of how you build product. And so I I say how I say I say to people, I most hated working at Apple as an engineer because it's not an engineering led company. It's much more of a product and marketing led company. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. But For sure. I probably build product and a product and engineering org most similarly to Apple. So Mm -hmm. I feel like it was this very, very important experience because Apple is one of the few companies. So I worked on the application framework team there, and this was in the early, early days of OS X. So we were building and designing APIs that at that point had already had 10 years of longevity through Next. (laughs) Yeah. And to this day, you can still see those APIs in existence. So there's a level of design and discipline that goes into this developer ecosystem that I saw as they were building it all out, when they were building out Interface Builder and thinking through what Xcode would look like and that developer experience. And yeah, so, and it feels like they were doing it for a. They were thinking further ahead than people tend to do now. Like, oh, you're just gonna. We're just gonna change everything every two years at this point. 
So those things lasting, I seem like the result of those design decisions to make them backwards compatible and, and, you know, have some ability to be built upon. Absolutely. And that was a very explicit decision of theirs. I remember the, it had to be the first week that I joined the company. I was straight out of school and looked at the, the framework and I said to my boss, why don't you have a pair class? We have a raise, but who everyone wants a pair. And my, my manager, Ali Ozer at the time, just looked at me and said, every API we introduce has to last another 10, 20 years. So <laughs> yeah. the amount of overhead and maintenance, we pay the price today for decisions we made 10 years ago for next in Cocoa around what the return <laughs> values were, what the inputs were. So even if it seems trivial, this is something that we want to support forever. That is a huge lesson that I don't think very many people get. That's amazing. Well, yeah. And I mean, it, when you say that this is kind of how you lead at Transposite, I mean, what, what, what does that mean? Are you building things that look really far ahead or it just means uh, you're, you're more product and marketing driven as a company than engineering driven? Or, or what, what, do you, what do you mean practically? How does that impact uh, the way that you lead now? I think a lot of ex-Apple people all share the sense that what Apple did really, really well is understand that engineers are heavily motivated when they work on a product that feels polished, regardless of, regardless of whether or not that decision lasts forever or you're going to ship the product. Focusing on that, that finesse makes a huge difference in how happy and proud you are of the product. So I, I, I often tell people this story where when I was working on AppKit, there, I was building out the new font panel and there was an internal development build that had a single black pixel in the bottom right-hand corner. And this wasn't a build that was going to hit production or anyone would see, but Steve found this intolerable that I could let a single black pixel in on this development build. And I feel like that's a little bit too extreme, but (laughs) (laughs) I do push my engineers that polish the product, make it feel like something that you'd be proud of, and then you'll work harder for it. That's interesting. So from there, you, you went where next and, and what did you, what did you learn at the next place? So after Apple, I actually did this stint in, Uh, humanities before landing myself at Google, where I worked as a software engineer and did, as I mentioned, some work in user research. Mm -hmm. And one of the main reasons at the time I thought to leave Apple was I knew that I didn't want to be an Apple lifer, Mm -hmm. even if that was a totally reasonable job, which by the way, at the time, no one would have predicted that Apple was going to be what it is today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But even had I known that, I knew it wasn't my personality. I wanted to see see what the this whole services distributed web world looked like. And so I, I knew I couldn't I didn't see myself there for 20 years. So I knew why not take the jump now to make sure I have that next set of skills. So Google was an obvious place to go. I at the time this was I I'd say 2005. So it was fairly soon after the IPO. It was definitely that exciting culture that was very, very engineering driven mm-hmm. and and very exploratory in your, your roles. So 
so yeah that's and that was the major difference is the engineering driven versus the like product and marketing driven side of things yes and it's interesting because i feel like we take this for granted now but google was one of the early companies to really shake up how promotions and leadership worked so at, when i worked at apple they were still part of that generation of companies that the managers had primary authority over raises and calibration and feedback and promotions towards this world uh, where that Google, I think, really led the path towards where people were hired in as generalists, assigned to different teams, a lot of flexibility in terms of transferring to different teams. But I think one of the big differences was this notion that you'd have centralized promotion committees across all of engineering to decide your future. Ah, and you think, and, and that's an that's a approach you prefer? So it's interesting. I, I used to prefer that. Uh -huh. At the time, I drank the Google Kool-Aid. <laughs> and only, I'd say, a decade later, now at least understand some of its limitations. Yeah. So I've since talked to a number of of different people and can acknowledge that the the problem with that centralized system is people are more disconnected from the actual people that they're promoting mm -hmm. which can actually let a lot more unconscious bias creep in yeah yeah that does make sense Ta wait so so dig into that i mean we were i was talking about salary bands today uh with rachel and a, and a friend of ours <laughs> we have such and, exciting uh, you know <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, when do you add a salary band in, et cetera? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I do understand, like, on the one hand, uh, if I manage Tina and I think Tina's doing a great job and I go to bat for Tina to get a raise, like, there, there's some advantages to me being close to you and therefore advocating for you. But there's certain places where, you know, my unconscious bias is going to lead me to not give you a promotion or whatever that is. And so, you know, I understand that at larger scale, companies wanting to put these processes in place so that there's more of that removed. So talk about how, you know, these centralized committees for promotions, et cetera, um, let that unconscious bias in. Is it that they just read your name and the unconscious bias comes in? Or, or how does... How does a group that's further removed from you get as affected or more affected than someone who's close to you? Can you explain a little bit about that? I think because the incentives are not necessarily, if I'm a manager and directly guiding the careers of the people that make my team effective, I'm highly incentivized to, even if I just know that this person's work is a little bit more on the project management side or on the communication side or the things that don't directly map to something that I can point to on a rubric, I'm still incentivized to promote them because I know that my general sensibility and my experience is that person is very, very valuable to my organization. Right. But when we move towards these centralized committees where things are distilled down to a rubric, 
then you're really, really dependent on how well each individual that's providing that feedback and putting together that packet, how well that they can articulate the nuances to that person's work. Yeah, yeah. You're right. totally dependent on your boss's ability to give a good a good presentation. But it's it's also, and then the engineers start to say, well, I'm graded on how many lines of code I write, therefore nothing else matters, and I'm just going to write all the lines of code, right? I mean, is is that part of the concern? I think so. I think that feedback is removed from the immediate context that it was written in. So someone can write feedback that is this person wrote a number of lines of code that wasn't successful and if someone didn't also put in there well that happened because there was a major project shift that required them to focus on this other high priority thing that context doesn't get translated yeah right well but doesn't the so and i i think this is this is funny i'm playing the devil's advocate against, uh, I don't know, that my, myself, the white uh, the patriarchy <laughs> here. But the, um, I mean, isn't the, like what I've read is that what tends to happen when it's down to the manager is that, you know, I as the manager as a white male tend to feel better, you know, just feel better about my white male reports, right? And, oh, they report to me, uh and, you know, I just really feel like, you know, Steve Johnson or whatever <laughs> this person's name the is, is doing just possible. a really fantastic job. Yeah, it's just really adding value. And like, it doesn't, I, I mean, it just sounds like what you're saying is, is there's unconscious bias in both? Or are you arguing that, that one is better than the other? I think I'm, I'm not necessarily arguing against the centralized promotion committees more I have a more nuanced opinion about them yeah. than I used to when I was gotcha. at Google and I think part yeah. of that is I agree that the reason why companies like Google shifted to the centralized committees is to avoid that case where managers maybe have that slight feeling but what they didn't consider is that unconscious bias still exists in the managers that are writing that feedback packet yeah. and still exists for every peer that's writing that feedback packet. And you've actually now multiplied that against another set of unconscious bias in the promotion committee. Yeah. And so amplified to think it. that that, yeah, you've now accidentally potentially amplified the bias. Yeah. I mean, the truth yeah, is there's no perfect way to do this. The, the most no, important no, thing see, is this to is, be this aware. Is... <laughs> Rachel, the sole goal is to come out of this with the perfect way <laughs> to do right. this. This is what Tina's here. She's going to advise us on Can how to solve this. Can technology solve this, solve this problem? <laughs> yes. Right. Oh, my God. Uh, so, so, yeah. So, obviously, you've learned a lot from being in these very different environments, and you're bringing that forward with you. And I want to talk about that, but I also want to – I noticed something in your resume, and I don't always look at someone's resume, but uh, – that you also have a strong interest in wine. And I wanted to ask you, uh, is that something you're still working on or, uh, or should we ask you about that after we're done talking about work? <laughs> I, I'd say I have a strong interest in drinking wine. <laughs> I, love, I love drinking and thinking about wine. The, what you're referring to is this company, Wine Savage, that I helped out with, mm -hmm. where I think... There was a period in time where I know a lot of people were really hopeful for the Pandora of wines, mm -hmm. the notion that you can distill down 
the various aspects of taste of wine that you love and create a perfect solution. Oh, wow. Yeah. And are you going to say, are you going to, are you going to crush me? (laughs) I know. I know. Unfortunately, I think what I learned in my experience working on this, which was very, very limited is that's really hard to do. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe in a good way, maybe it's good that there are things such as food and wine that are, are Mm -hmm. so subjective and influenced by lived experiences and aren't just like technology and behave the same way every time but more importantly yeah I mean more importantly what I learned in that process was actually one of the biggest problems is the operationalizing and scaling of such a such a project so so can you say a bit more of that like is it because there's too many wines to try or 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 analyze or I think even is is even more basic than that. The act of custom packing mm. sets of wine is just more more time consuming and expensive than people really want to pay for. Yeah, the market just won't bear. Stitch it. fix yeah. stitch fix for wine. I mean it seems like it seems like a pretty good idea, but <laughs> the uh I mean you know, if you could boil this all down to math, it's a little bit like I mean, I took a music theory class in high school, and when I found out that all music was just math, I was like devastated. And uh, <laughs> you know, when I got to jazz, I was like, "This is still just math, but it's complicated enough math that I can't hear it when I'm listening to it, and so I can still enjoy it." Indistinguishable and, uh, from magic. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't want food to become that, or or beverage that would that would devastate yeah. me. I enjoy those things too much, but uh, I, huh. I appreciate that approach to it. That uh, that uh, you were, you know, that you're saying, Tina, that it's good. It's kind, of, it's probably good that this is the case, as Kendall is saying, that it's not yeah. uh, not something you can just put into a, a matrix and figure out. Yeah. So exactly. So Tina, I want to ask. I mean, let's pivot a little bit more to today and uh, some of the things you're doing at Transposite. I mean, what is a you, you've brought up all these things that you've sort of learned over time, but what's a leadership issue uh, that you're dealing with right now? What's something that's top of mind for you? Definitely one of the top of mind aspects is I've had all these experiences with engineering ladders and how to progress people on their careers. And unfortunately, I almost feel paralyzed by fear. I know all the ways that these processes can go wrong. <laughs> And so I'm trying to find the right way to navigate that to help people grow. And a huge part of that is I really think it's important that more of software engineering as a discipline and as a career is focused on communication and empathy and being able to navigate technical disagreement in a productive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so I think about a lot how to how to structure that into the the ladder, how to properly reward people for the pieces of their job that are not just writing code. Do you feel like you're doing this well or do you feel like you're doing it poorly? I think it's a little bit of both. So, I think that I one of the aspects that I that I think I do a good job of as a leader is coaching engineers on how to better empathize with their colleagues' point of view for different technical discussions and resolve conflicts in ways that people can feel heard. 
where I probably struggle is I've never been someone who likes the the process of engineering management and being able to distill their their work onto a rubric and let people understand these are the exact things that you need to do. So it's a constant struggle to to get more of that into the process. Yeah, and how do you manage? I mean, so to progress to possibly move into leadership of people, for example, it's it's clear that someone needs to have a um, you know have good good skills in those areas that people used to call soft skills, which is a terrible thing to call them. Um, uh, but that what what happens when you encounter someone who you know isn't necessarily a jerk or whatever, but just isn't isn't a people person and doesn't have interest in that? Do they just stay in their you know programming lane, or, or do they not you know are they going to fail out? Uh, of an org that you're a leader in? Well, we've been pretty fortunate in our hiring that I don't think we we have any engineers that are very extreme on that that side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And a huge piece of that is we've set out in our hiring guidelines that communication and collaboration are really critical pieces of the job. And we also talk a lot about our engineering org as being a pragmatic culture. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I say that that's such an important rubric is I've been in so many engineering organizations that technical disagreements almost feel like religious arguments. Yeah. So what whether or not you want to do something in a functional style or in a, a declarative style, those to some extent, those can just feel like religious debates. And so we make sure that people that come into our organization really want to focus on end user issues. So the way I lead the company and lead my engineers in technical decision-making is how do we boil down those decisions into what is the actual difference from either the end user perspective how does this affect the amount of technical debt we have? Mm-hmm. What is the difference in engineering time and effort? And once we boil down those pieces, if you then have, oftentimes there's one clear winner and one clear loser, but if things are on the fence, then it really, we can agree that it just doesn't matter that much which one we pick. Yeah. 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 And it sounds like, you know, when you having an org like that, and, and as you described, you know, uh, selecting and, and promoting, selecting highly for people who are good at these, or who are skilled at these kinds of uh, interactions, you have to be able to, to start your company with that in mind. I think it's much, much harder to come into an established place and then go, these are the things that matter. We're changing what's important to us. <laughs> So yeah. I'm really glad that you got to set up your company the way that you are, you know, that you're aiming for the kind of culture. And it's, it's, um, I think that people talk a lot of talk about wanting a particular culture and a particular approach. It sounds like you're way more on the walking the walk side of things. Um, yeah. Well, and I, so you, you've said, oh, go well, ahead, I, I want to <laughs> ask, I mean, I want to ask Tina, this is uh, your first, I mean, official management position, right? Since, since you started this uh, company? Yes. And so, I mean, what has been, 
the big surprise or not in doing this? Has, has it been what you thought it would be? Has it been dramatically different than you thought it would be? I mean, you're also leading at a different scale. You're not going into low-level management. You're going into company leadership. And, you know, that's that's a big leap. And uh, maybe talk about the surprises, but I'd also like to hear, you know, what are you enjoying about it? So I'd say in some ways, I probably had my – was less surprised than even – people who become managers earlier in their career as part of a big company, because I've been in industry for 15 or more years at this point. And so I, I knew what to expect. And so that doesn't mean that I wasn't, there aren't aspects that were unusual, but I've heard, I think other guests on your, your podcast talk about how the first time in leadership, they had never, they didn't know how to, you know, hire or promote or, you know, what all these different processes were. And so I had at least seen them Mm -hmm. at, from the other side at multiple companies and had a lot of time to think through what I liked and what I didn't like about them. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And as as, along the way, I mean, have you, have you been given any particular kinds of leadership or management advice? And if so, has any of it, any of it been really good or has any of it been really terrible? So I think my favorite management advice has all been advice that was not meant to be management advice. So one of my favorite people in the world is Brene Brown. Do either of you know her? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, I don't know her personally, but exactly. I, don't, I don't know her either. I like, I just I, I, <laughs> uh, highly admire slash worship her. But I, <laughs> I remember when I was first introduced to her TED talk and then read some of her books. Uh, for those of you who are, have not heard of her, she does. She's a vulnerable vulnerability researcher. And yeah. So that to me has actually been one of the guiding principles in how I manage my employees. Oftentimes I feel like when people shut down or dig in their heels about a, an argument or, or a technical decision, there's oftentimes some vulnerability that's at the root. And so Mm -hmm. when I'm talking to my engineers, what I'm often trying to do is understand and develop enough empathy from their their point of view to understand what is that vulnerability and how can I pull that out of them? Yeah. Is it actually relevant to the decision? Can we, can we, you know, can we establish a baseline that doesn't trip that or whatever? Yeah, it's that's hard yeah. stuff. Um, do you have so you you work with you work with the uh, sort of principles from Brene Brown on this? Do you have other um, other trainings or other workshops or books that you recommend for this kind of stuff? I mentioned earlier Radical Candor. I really like uh, Kim Scott's work mm-hmm. there. I there's another book that I don't remember the name of at the moment. Uh, well, we can we can check back in with you and put it in the show notes if you think. Yeah. No well. Worries. Putting people on the spot is half the fun of this, Rachel. You act like that's not the the most amazing part. Um, (laughs) Well, so Tina, what we ask everybody on this podcast is talk about your relationship with authority. Uh, I mean, it sounded sounds like you were sort of uh, you know kicking against the goads for a while to get to this position, and now you're in a position of authority. So, how did you feel about having others have authority over you? How do you feel about having authority over others? So, I. I was always a rule follower. 
So I don't think I had that. I hate authority or just, you know, very <laughs> negative reaction towards it. But I was raised in an environment with my mother where I was also told to, to question it and, you know, demand at least an explanation. So I don't think I had a necessarily negative stance towards authority, but I was taught to ask questions. What's interesting is okay. I've heard of a lot of other people talk about authority as this very binary choice where that they make, where they think about it as I choose to to rule in an authoritarian style or not. And in my experience, up until probably very recently where the company has grown large enough, I don't think that I've ever had, that anyone's ever been just, I will do whatever you say, Tina. I feel like women are <laughs> more often challenged and asked to back up their yeah. decisions. And so we learn very early on how to build consensus as the way we, as a way to get things done. Yeah. To have the meeting before the meeting and make sure you know how it's going to go and talk everybody through it. And I mean, those are good options for anyone trying to, you know, have a, a, an outcome the way they want. But yeah, I agree. I, I think women have to do that a lot more. They have to be a lot better at it. And I think that's a, it's a strength. I, I, I agree. I think that that is actually how you want to lead. But I think one of the differences is I don't think that women are really given another option. And so even as CTO, mm -hmm. I, I often tap the engineers I know will have strong opinions and work to get their buy-in early on, well before any decision is made. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. That is a uh, that is good, and I think that you know when you when you don't have to do that as as part of your everyday life, you you don't develop that skill, and, and but yet you know plenty of men still proceed forward without those skills. Um, so now you, you know you didn't you don't you didn't have a problem. It sounds like you had a very well rounded upbringing in that sense, that that you didn't have a problem with authority, you didn't go through a rebellious phase or or whatever, and now you haven't had authority in the sense that you have you know you're the, the the reigning monarch and nobody questions you but how do you prefer to uh to give people their instructions i absolutely prefer the consensus based model where people at least feel that their concerns and opinions have been heard and even if the decision is made in a way that they disagree with that they feel that you understand why there's a disagreement there. And and all that said, even though I, I feel like I've had to learn how to build things, build decision-making with consensus, I am now starting to see that my position has this undue weight and influence. And that has also mm. been interesting, is navigating what it's like to actually have people maybe respond too quickly to something you say. <laughs> and Not so question you one, too much. <laughs> well, one of the big learnings that I've had is, you know, I've been an individual contributor most of my career. And so early on when engineers would ask me for my opinion, I would assume that meant that they just wanted my opinion and I would, I would willingly share it with them. And mm -hmm. I started to realize at some point where engineers were possibly using that to shortcut 
coming to a, an agreement with themselves. So they were almost going and asking their parent to just decide for them because they were <laughs> arguing. And so I've had to learn to identify those moments and actually withhold my opinion to not sway the outcome and potentially help them at least understand each other's point of view and hopefully come to a better understanding and a better outcome on their own. Or you just say, go ask your other So like parent. at that, someone comes to you. <laughs> yes, the other founder or whatever. So that you like, oh, you, someone calls you and says, we're fighting about whatever, you know, Emacs versus VI or, you know, whatever the, the religious organ uh, fight is at the moment. And instead of going, well, I think Emacs is awesome or whatever, you say, uh, so what are you, you know, what are you each thinking? And and then to go after that, is that how you approach those kinds of things? Exactly. Rather than, uh, okay. rather than give them an answer, hopefully ask them a what or a how question around why there's this disagreement to begin with, or what are the different points of view? Yeah. And a huge part of that is oftentimes I learn something from that. So yeah, the correct answer, cool. just, <laughs> Eventually just like, for oh. clarity, the correct answer to... <laughs> Should it be it's, Emacs or VI? It's, it's why not Google Docs, right? You're supposed to turn that around into a question to get them. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, Kendall. The answer is always, always Emacs. Always Emacs. Google Docs. Um, so we're uh, we're coming towards the end of the, our time here, but I, I wanted to go back a little bit to um, to something we discussed earlier because I would like to know what kind of wine you like to drink. So I've recently been really learning to appreciate Italian wines. So oh, yeah? learning how to, being in the Bay Area since around 2001, my initial palate was very much shaped by Napa Valley and Napa Sonoma, this area, which tends to be very fruity, jammy wines and a pretty easy wine to learn to drink. But mm -hmm. I, over time I've learned that Italian wines have a much earthier sense to them and that makes them much better with various kinds of food. And so Ooh. I've been exploring, dipping my toes in with some of the more fruit forward Italian wines like a Sangiovese or a Montepulciano, and then hopefully expanding from there. I find wine awesome. something and that that I'm constantly trying to expand what I can appreciate and learn more about. Are there <laughs> It can be expensive though. <laughs> are there any wines you genuinely dislike i don't like really sweet wines unless okay. occasionally i can do a good dessert wine but just a, a wine that sh is not meant to be a dessert wine that's inordinately sweet i'm not into it interesting yeah i feel it i think we probably have some similar tastes uh but i was super curious and uh, um is there any particular wine that you're enjoying a lot right now i'm, I'm gonna make a note of this <laughs> Well, one of my absolute favorite wineries is down in Los Olivos. It's called Blair Fox. Mm -hmm. and they make phenomenal Syrah. Ooh, I will totally check that out. Thank you. Um, and besides wine, sorry, because I'm super hyper-focused on that. Uh, what, <laughs> what other hobbies have you outside of work? So I love the water and almost anything that involves the water. And so I, I surf. I have a, a skull that I row up in Sausalito. I've recently taken to kite surfing. Oh, cool. I was certified last year in sailing. Ah. So pretty much anything that involves the ocean and the water or the bay. And I'll tolerate rivers. And is it mostly <laughs> out on it. the bay or are you going other places? 
most of them are ocean based. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, you should come check out Port Townsend. We've got an amazing uh, wooden boat festival. <laughs> there you go. It is awesome. a lovely I will place check it to go out. out on the water. Yeah. Well, Sounds great. well, thanks so much for being with us, Tina. Before we let you go, where can people find you on the internet? So they can find me on Twitter. And some reason, I've recently spent a lot, been contacting a lot of people through LinkedIn. So hmm. Okay. Yeah. What's, what's right. your Twitter we'll handle? So we, we have that written down. Oh, my Twitter handle is KMonkeyJam. KMonkeyJam. Okay. As in the letter K? Yeah. It's funny. I It was sort of random that I created that handle when I was in college. But in hindsight, everyone should create like some random name for themselves early in their online lives. Maybe yeah. that's obvious now, but I guess over time, more and more of these products are real name based. And so that's less of an issue, but circa late nineties, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, if you could get, if I could get Tina on a platform, I would do that, but I'm glad that I established some sort of online identity that yeah. was much easier to get across all platforms. Yeah. Everyone knows that's, that's you. No one else has called that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on the yeah, show today. So this was very, very interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>